It's such a joy for me to have time to dive into God's Word and prepare to preach it each week. And uh, this book of Job has been a rich time for me as, as I've been able to uh, really press into its meaning, its lessons. Um, this is our fall series. We've now uh, covered the basic story of Job, his righteousness and richness, the arrangement between God and Satan over his trials, then the torment of his losses and his disease, his clashes with his friends, his enduring faith, and then God's strong rebuke. Today we really come to the last chapter of the story, the story of his restoration. We still have three sermons to go, but they'll all be sort of looking at Job from a bird's eye view, talking about lessons that we can learn from the story as a whole. But today we read the last chapter, literally, chapter 42 of Job. Beginning in verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I should remind you of what I told you last week, that the next couple of verses, Job quotes things that God said earlier, and then responds to them. And this next question is something that he quotes from God saying earlier, and then what he says afterwards is his response. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Then he quotes again, Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then Job's response to God is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. They came to him, I'm sorry, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. 
And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karenhapik. And in all the land there were no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man, full and full of days. Now, it's, it's common to think of this last part of the story as Job's restoration but really it was much more than just a restoration of what he had had before and where he had been before. In almost every way, Job's life was vastly improved after his sufferings in comparison to before. As it says in verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job, Job more than his beginning. Now, we're never told that his disease went away. That's implied in the story, his complete healing. In that way, his health, he probably went back to the way he had been before. But his wealth was double what he had before. It even says it was twice. And if you, if you look at all the details of the numbers, they're all twice of what Moses, it says at the beginning of the book that Job had. And then in terms of his kids, he had ten kids to replace the ten that he had before, but this, his uh, second set of kids has some other things said about them that make, that tone up, the turn up the heat a little bit. For instance, there's nothing said about his first ten children except that they like to party. But these children included three remarkable daughters. They're said to be beautiful, more beautiful than all the other women in the land. And they're given names. That is, I mean, obviously all people in the Bible had names, but the point is that their names are given in the story. And I think this may be the only time, at least the only one I'm aware of in the Bible where uh, there's a group of children and the daughters are named and the sons aren't. Just the daughters are named. And then the statement is made that they became heirs of their father. Now you know in the, the way that things were done in the ancient world that the father divided his inheritance among his sons. But whatever the reason was, Job divided his inheritance among all of them. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, in verse 14 and 15. So, even though we just have these little indications, we know that beautiful things came from Job's sufferings. Then his reputation and his status 
and his acceptance among others seems to have been elevated as well. Hartley says, the fact that Job, the fact that God has Job intercede for the comforters indicates that Job has gained spiritual authority for having endured undeserved suffering and then yielding his complaint to God. So, he, he, he achieved a higher status in the eyes of others because of what he had gone through and yet remained faithful. And God vindicated him and that was widely known. This can also be seen in verse 11 where it says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And so, um, you know, and it's, it's clear that uh, in this that, that um, you know, Job says in the midst of his sufferings that basically everybody has rejected him. Even the servants in his own house won't even look at him. And yet now he's elevated, he's celebrated, he's exalted, he's gifted with uh, treasures. There seems to have been a change in his wife, even though it's just very subtly implied. You know, she's the one that said, curse God and die in the midst of his sufferings. But now she's apparently the one who bore ten more beautiful, blessed children. Which, it seems to me, implies that she had a change of heart and she grew in faith as a, you know, as a result of Job's experience. But the biggest improvements in Job's life were not in his outward life, but in his inward life. Job did not just return to how life was before his suffering. He was a bigger and a deeper man after his experience. His defective theology had been corrected. He now knows that he lives purely by God's grace. He's been humbled by God's rebuke. Reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar after he was, his sanity was removed for seven years and, and his repentance and his acknowledgement of God. And I'm sure that there was something similar in Job as a result of his experience. He says, I put my hand over my mouth and I don't think that just lasted for a minute as he finished his conversation with God. I think there was a sense in which Job's Job wisely had his hand over his mouth the rest of his life, guarding himself from saying things that were presumptuous. And and so he was a different man in a wonderful way. Never again would Job be tempted to think God was being unjust when confusing and difficult things surfaced in his life. By virtue of his sufferings, Job had been made more aware of his neediness. And the knowledge of one's neediness is a precious and important gift that God gives to us or works in us. What Job had thought was a terrible attack by a vicious enemy turns out to have been the firm grasp of a dear friend. What seemed like the deadly piercing of a villain's spear 
proved to be the skillful incision of the great physician. Suddenly, all of his grumbling and complaining looked so foolish and senseless and faithless. What once seemed like such reasonable arguments that he had to challenge God in terms of his actions towards him now seemed so senseless and stupid. During Job's suffering, he couldn't figure out how the idea of a God who helps and saves fits in with a God who remains silent while his people suffer unspeakable agony. But now, after God has spoken to him out of the whirlwind, that seeming contradiction has vanished. Now he knows that God is his redeemer, not only from troubles and sorrows, but even in the midst of them and even through them and by means of them. For Job has been delivered not only through his sufferings, but by means of his sufferings from all kinds of wrong ideas and attitudes and sinful hearts, heart that he had before. Whereas he had interpreted trials beforehand as signs of divine disfavor and was thus bewildered by his suffering. Now he sees that trials can actually be signs rather of heavenly love. He had learned so much about God through all of his experiences that he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Suffering has enabled Job to see God in a fresh and much fuller way. He now sees the glory and the wisdom of God in a much deeper and richer way. Satan had desired to drive a wedge between Job and his Lord. But what his efforts instead produced was that Job was driven into the arms of the Lord. Job, God used Satan's wedge as a bridge whereby Job was brought across the gap of his ignorance and drawn closer to the Lord than ever before. Satan intended it for evil, but God intended it for good and used it for good. In God's perfect wisdom, the suffering of Job had been just intense enough and lasted just long enough to produce the wonderful fruits that we see in Job. Faith, humility, gratitude, probably compassion as well. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Just as other Bible heroes who went through great trials, Job also was so much better off after than before. Not only did Job grow through this, but all of us, all God's people benefit from Job's sufferings. We're all made rich as a result of what he went through. Surely one of the greatest lessons of the story of Job is the benefit of suffering. God knows what he's doing. Which of us is not richer for having suffered? 
if, if you were to go and interview each person who's here this morning and ask them about what the Lord has done in his life, you would find over and over and over again that some of the most precious jewels of growth and gifts that God has given have come through times of hardship and difficulty. I'm sure that you can look back on times of failure, times of heartache, times of loss, times of disappointment, times of pain, and see the good fruit that God has wrought through them. It's not enough just to move on after you have a painful experience. We need to cherish the value of our sufferings. Some people have only one level in their relationship with suffering. They are so desperate to avoid it or escape it that they have no ability to appreciate it or to learn from it or to reflect upon it. You know, when something goes wrong, so many times we ask what we could have done to prevent it. And that's fine. But we should never let ourselves think that life would just go smoothly if we just lived the way that we're supposed to live. Many think that if everything were done right, crises would never occur. But sometimes tragedy and calamity are something you could not have prevented. Sometimes God brings it to pass out of his love for us. And not just for us, but for others as well. Job's sufferings not only benefited him, but they benefited us all. Think of the value that his story has brought to many believers as they suffered down through the ages, all through his one man suffering. You know, when we talk like this, some people walk away, and I've talked to people, even in our congregation, who hear sermons about suffering, and they walk away, and they, and they are just uh, preoccupied with dreading future suffering. Oh no, if, if life is really full of suffering and hard things are going to happen, I'm just like walking around waiting for the ceiling to fall on me. Well, it's good to expect hardships instead of living in the illusion that our lives will be all about fulfilling our dreams. But the Lord loves us. And he gives us what's best. He will not allow us to suffer anything different than what we need. And whatever he calls us to go through, he will be with us in it. And it will be good. And afterwards, we'll see why it was necessary. And we'll see all the benefits it brought us. And we won't have any regrets. We'll be grateful that it happened. So we don't need to worry about future troubles. We can walk with God and know that he is good and he is by our side through it all. Now, isn't there another side to all this? 
What about PTSD? What about the damage that traumatic experiences do to our psyche? Isn't it true, if we're really honest with ourselves, that when we go through traumatic experiences, though we gain a lot from it, we usually lose something too. I'm sure many, as many of us have had experiences which have shaken and broken, wounded, bruised us. And though we grow deeper and more mature through suffering, we also lose some optimism, some confidence sometimes, some hopefulness maybe. We lose a certain spark and we're often a step closer to weariness as a result of it. Knowing human nature, isn't it likely that Job was psychologically and emotionally imprinted by the suffering he experienced? I mean, on top of everything else, Job lost ten children. And you can't get them back. And even though God gave him ten more, those original ones were still living in his heart. You know if you lost your child, even if God gave you another child, that doesn't mean that the first ones just disappeared from your memory and from your heart. I wouldn't be surprised if Job had something like PTSD afterwards. It's just the kind of thing that happens to the human soul when they go through trauma. But we must ask ourselves whether that spark that might be lost, that hopefulness that might be dented, that confidence that might be shaken, that optimism that might be eroded. Were those really all from the Lord in the first place? I know for me, when I look back at my younger years, it seems to me that much of my enthusiasm wasn't really from the Lord. I thought it was at the time, but I believe now it, there was a lot of youthful idealism mixed in. The Bible repeatedly reminds us to be sober-minded and steadfast. Now, of course, it also commands us to be joyful and thankful. It's not wrong to be excited. I love being around exuberant believers. They help me. They cheer me up. I'm just saying that losing some of it doesn't necessarily mean that we become less less. Christ-like. The fact is, in addition to joy being a part of a biblically healthy emotional life, so is mourning and weeping and groaning. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is a broken world, and we are broken people, and we labor under the burden of this brokenness. 
often Christians, especially of my generation, are accused of having a Disney-like storybook view of the world when really the world is harsh, unjust, bleak, and cruel. Many times, people who say this have a good point. Many times, Christians do have a Disney storybook view of the world, and they work hard to shield themselves from the disturbing things, to prevent the harsher realities of the world from entering into their minds and bothering their thoughts. A few months ago, I told, I was talking to a Christian friend about the books we were reading. And I told him that I was reading a poignant Christian book on sexual abuse. And his eyes got wide and he said, why would you ever want to read a book like that? Job teaches us to face up to the harsh, bitter realities of life, the injustice that exists in the world, but it does so without losing sight of the good and sovereign God who rules over all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But the book of Job also teaches us not to slide into the cynicism which has swallowed up so much of the world. Have you ever heard of, have you ever seen or watched the, the movie or the play Into the Woods? Raise your hand if you ever, if you know what I'm talking about. There we go, it's like almost half of us. Well, um, the story intertwines the characters and plots of several classic fairy tales. The first half of the movie is very different than the second half. The first half is, very, is like a predictable fairy tale with good guys and bad guys. The second half of the movie is very different. All of a sudden, the good guys are doing evil, deceptive, immoral things. It, make, it made me feel like the creators of the story we're saying that there is a naive, childish way of viewing the world where everything's black and white, where there's clear right and wrong, where some people are trying to be good and others not at all. And then there's a much more realistic view of the world where things are much more messy. Right and wrong, good and bad, black and white are not helpful in understanding the real world. In this view, things don't always make sense. Things don't always go right. Things are often not the way they seem. The good guys are often more messed up than the bad guys. This reminds me of the story of Job. At the beginning, everything seemed to be going in a predictable direction in Job's life. He was righteous and prosperous, and everything made sense. But then everything went haywire. Suddenly nothing made sense. 
everything was thrown off. Everything was a mess. What had been predictable and well-ordered became a train wreck. And instead of a picture of friends caring for each other and supporting one another, we have a picture of friends fighting with one another and distrusting one another and making evil accusations against each other. You know, there's actually a lot of truth in the story of Into the Woods. Like with Job, there are a lot of times in life when things just don't make sense. When things seem to be turned on their heads. Many of us in our church, especially of my generation, have had our noses rubbed in the tragic, dysfunctional realities of life over the last few years. And I admit, we probably needed it. But the thing that is wrong with Into the Woods is that unlike Job, the chaos is the end of the story. The chaos is the bottom line. And that, my dear friends, is the lie. This is one of the great ways that the book of Job is so helpful to us. It honestly teaches us to face the darker realities of the world and not hide our heads in the sand and pretend they don't exist. But it doesn't end there. It then guides us to recognize that God rules even over what seems to be out of control. That God orders what seems like chaos. That God rules rightly even when things don't seem right. That God's redemption prevails even over what seems like a horrible mess. In the middle of the story, there are times when it looks like the idea that a just and holy and good God is ruling over the universe is all just a pipe dream. But then, in the end, the chaos gets trumped by the unsearchable wisdom and magnificent goodness and power of our great God. And this great God turns tragedy into triumph in a spectacular last chapter of the story where Job is not only delivered from his afflictions but delivered from his impression that his afflictions were evil. They weren't. And in the end we see that even Job's sins and failures are a part of the wonderful story of his redemption. Job was not just better having suffered, he was better off having failed and then been rebuked. The cure is better than if he had never had the disease. There are three parts of Job's story. The righteousness and richness in the beginning, the disorder and disaster of the suffering, the restoration and satisfaction of his redemption at the end. Now, does that sound familiar to you somehow? 
aren't those the same three parts of the story of mankind? Creation and righteousness and richness. The disorder and disaster of suffering which comes about as a result of sin. And then the restoration and satisfaction of redemption through Christ. This is the Bible's story. And the Bible has many stories that follow this pattern. Even the story of Jesus follows this pattern. Jesus comes doing good, working wonders, teaching beautiful things, modeling love. But then there's a tragic backlash against him. And there's conflict and injustice and tragedy and confusion. But then he is raised in glory and everything is right again. Everything makes sense again. Even his suffering. And then the pattern begins anew with the New Testament church. At Pentecost, everything begins with glory and the proclamation of the truth. And everything seems right. Everything's clicking. But then there's opposition. And there's sin. And there's hypocrisy. By schism rent asunder. By heresy distressed. And it became easy to be confused and to grow disenchanted and even cynical. And the cry goes up, how long, O Lord? How long till you make things right? How long will we flounder in sin and brokenness? But like Job, the bride of Christ holds on, sometimes seemingly by her fingertips as she waits for the Lord to show up for the last chapter and restore all things. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious becomes the church at rest. We're in this story too, beloved. As we wait for this great last chapter, it's hard. It's confusing. But remember Job. It doesn't end this way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. What great encouragement you have given us in your word. We thank you. We thank you also now that we can celebrate what our Lord did for us. And Lord, we come to the table humbly with gratitude and with rejoicing because, O oh Lord, in the brokenness of this world around us, in the brokenness of our own lives, our own hearts, we know that you reign true and that you are with your people and that we can trust you and know that you will not let us down. So Lord, we look to you and we pray that you would reveal yourself to each one as we come that we might enjoy you and feed upon you and be strengthened by you. 
We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.